All right, Jesse, last week's Black Widow was totally bonkers. Who's falling out of love this week? Today's story is a tale of wealth, privilege, infidelity, and shocking betrayals that lead to not one, but two horrific murders. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about rocky relationships, devious delusions, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy, before we dive in today, we've got an exciting announcement. Love Murder has joined the Cloud 10 iHeartMedia Podcast Network, and we could not be more thrilled. Cloud 10 is a fast-growing network that has shows across entertainment, comedy, wellness, and of course, true crime. Yeah, they have some really, really excellent and fast-growing true crime shows like Sinisterhood, Murder with My Husband, Criminal Broads, Crime Salad, and Casual Criminalists. Their shows are so, so good, guys. Definitely check them out. And it's really, you know, why we wanted to join their network is because they have such quality programming and it's such an honor to be in those shows company, truly. So yeah, we are super excited. We've absolutely loved getting to know everyone at the Cloud 10 team. And thank you so much for sharing this next part of our journey with us, guys. All right. Today, we have such a crazy, crazy case. This was actually listener recommended by two people. So I would like to thank Sleepless in CA and Hey Look, It's Lennon K from Instagram. You guys were totally right. This story <laughs> is bananas, and I really appreciate you bringing it to my attention. For my sources, I used the book Never Enough by Joe McGinnis and a CT Post article by Deborah Friedman from 2011, as well as a CBS News article about a 48 Hours episode from May 24th, 2011. It was a hazy early November afternoon in Hong Kong in 2003. Maintenance man Chow Yu Kwong rang the doorbell of a luxury high-rise condominium located in the toniest tower in all of Parkview. Parkview was beyond a luxury complex. It was its own self-contained world, located on a pristine 3,000-acre park with a hotel, eight restaurants, four tennis courts, two swimming pools, two driving ranges, and just about any service that a wealthy person could ever dream of or desire. Parkview was home to hundreds of obscenely rich expats, mostly white foreigners who came to make their money in the Asian markets by investment banking. Wow. This place is crazy. It also overlooks the ocean. I mean, it's just the most stunning, picturesque place that you could possibly imagine living. Those who performed, who succeeded in making millions or billions for their companies, were up-towered, meaning they would move into a higher tower number. Moving on up. Exactly. 
No tower was more impressive in address than Tower 17, and boy, did their tenants know it. Chow knew to expect bizarre requests from the entitled expats, but he never imagined what would face him on the inside of a 3,500-square-foot condo that overlooked the ocean, owned by an American investment banker named Robert Kissel and his beautiful wife, Nancy. The housekeeper, Min, let the four-man crew in, led by Chow, and directed him to the living room. There was a bulky eight-foot-long rolled carpet that Chow had been instructed to move to a storage unit in Tower 15. Uh... <laughs> what? Uh-huh, it's already pretty sketchy. It seemed like a normal enough request, but something was clearly wrong. The carpet reeked so badly that one of the men began retching. It was also clear by the shape of the carpet that something was rolled inside. Attempting not to inhale. I mean, this is bananas. That is like so blatant. I mean, it might as well be like blood splatter and wrapped in plastic all over it as well. I mean, we'll get into it, but the person who did this was so lazy that they didn't even get rid of their own body. They're like calling the maintenance men and the housekeeper to do it. Insane. Well, we're talking about severely entitled and privileged people in this episode. So you shall see how this came to be. Our favorite. Mm Mm-hmm. Attempting not to inhale, the men loaded the stinking heap onto the trolley. It was heavy, much, much too heavy for a carpet. It felt like it was 200 pounds and the weight was oddly distributed. The housekeeper gagged as they left the home with a fetid bundle, and her look told Chow she too recognized that something was very, very wrong with the carpet. Yeah, something was very dead. Indeed. Chow shut the foul load into the storage unit and returned the unit's keys to its owner. When he did, he voiced his concern about the smell of the carpet. He said that something seemed to be very, very wrong. The owner of the unit simply said, oh, that's nothing. Just forget about it. (laughs) Don't worry about that. That smell of decomposition. Just don't. Don't even worry about it. (laughs) Don't worry about a 200-pound carpet. Uh Uh-huh. Chow followed orders, but a sense of ill ease clouded the rest of his day. He wondered about what was in the carpet and what wrongdoing had accompanied it. He wouldn't have to wait long, though, because the gruesome truth would be revealed that very night and spark one of the most sensational trials Hong Kong had ever seen. And somewhere, a world away, within years of one tragic murder, a second would occur. The two deaths tied forever to one another. Get ready for a wild ride today. Okay, let's start with the family of Robert Kissel, the man whose fancy condominium we were just discussing. So Rob's father, Bill Kissel, was a chemical engineer and entrepreneur who patented a revolutionary form of dry toner for Xerox machines that made millions of dollars before other companies' technology caught up. Unreal. It's so crazy how somebody can improve a product like dry toner and make a multi-million dollar empire from something that small. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and probably just from the patent. Right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's that's crazy. Yep. So Bill was described as harsh, vindictive, and determined to succeed at any cost. He married a woman named Elaine who was the opposite in temperament. Elaine was sweet, kind, and nurturing, and the couple had three children, oldest son Andrew in 1960, Robert in 1963, and baby girl Jane in 1968. 
The family was very privileged. They lived in a mansion in Saddle River, New Jersey, that was just around the corner from Richard Nixon's estate. They also had a multi-million dollar ski chalet on Stratton Mountain in Vermont, where, of course, all the kids became excellent skiers. Andrew became an angry, sullen teen who was rude and temptuous, very much taking after his father. Sometimes people, you know how people hate those that are the most like them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like looking in a mirror. Exactly, exactly. That's absolutely what happened with Bill and Andrew. Bill despised his eldest son. He cut him down every chance he got, and he heavily favored Rob, which, of course, was extremely damaging and only ruined the brother's relationship as well, you know? Yeah, and I feel like that's not good for either kid, you know, to have the undivided attention. No. It's not healthy for the whole family. Yeah. Well, Andrew went on to Boston University, and Rob went on to University of Rochester, graduating in 1986. After graduation, Rob worked for his father for one tense year. Even though he was his father's favorite, it still was not a good working situation. Obviously, the dad doesn't seem like the greatest guy. No, the dad is is a real piece of work, for sure. So he then enrolled in NYU's business school with an eye on a career in finance. In 1987, two weeks before matriculation, Rob went with a fraternity brother named Michael to Club Med Turquoise in the Turks and Caicos to blow off some steam before committing to his studies. Wow. Okay. This place sounds really wild, too. Like, I wouldn't do it now in my life because I'm an old mom. But, like, this sounded really fun, actually. What year is this? 1987. Okay. So the brochure said that it had been designed for travelers in their 20s and 30s who enjoy making friends on vacation and value communal fun. The subtext was that it was a clothing optional, good place to do drugs and get laid in paradise. The brochure says that? (laughs) No, it was like suggested. It was like hinted at, but they didn't say it. Although I do think they mentioned the clothing optional part. Wait, what did you say about communal? Communal relationships? They said, the brochure did say it was designed for people in their 20s and 30s who enjoy making friends on vacation and value communal fun. Communal fun? Is that like orgies? Wink, wink. I think it has to be orgies. Wink, wink. (laughs) Communal fun? Yeah, well, he had fun because it was on this Caribbean vacation that Rob would meet a woman that would alter the course of his life forever. Did he knock her up? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Nancy Keishan was a beautiful Midwestern girl born to a restaurateur named Ira and a department store heiress mother named Jean. She had an older sister named Laura and a somewhat tumultuous upbringing following her parents' divorce when she was 12 years old. Her mother moved her from Cincinnati to Piedmont, California, where Jean had a hard time finding and keeping work. In a bid to become independent and shrug off the stifling expectations of her wealthy family, Jean decided to cut them off and not receive financial support. Probably not a great idea because it sounds like she had a really hard time managing, keeping a job, and raising her two teenage girls. And it ended up plunging her into an anxiety disorder. Uh, which made it even harder to connect with her children. Okay. So Laura married early, moved away, and cut ties with her entire family for good. The older sister just stopped speaking to the entire family. Nancy struggled in school and acted out. She was highly promiscuous, and she drank a ton, and she was also doing coke already in high school. Yeah. So not not a great 
combination. But she was also like really, really charming, very vivacious. But she had a personality that could turn on a dime. Like she could be effusive one minute and angry the next. And so she was like this very temptuous, like sensual, exciting young woman, you know? Okay. She was also really, really cute. She was like 5'4", like a very slender figure, but she had some like baby curves. And she was described as quick, sharp, and funny. And she garnered attention wherever she went, She said they said. Okay. Despite her innate intelligence and some artistic talent, Nancy had a little follow-through. After a failed attempt at junior college and a half-hearted attempt to attend art school in L.A., Jean finally told Nancy that it was time to move out, find somewhere else to go, because they were fighting a lot at that point. So she moved in with Ira and his second wife in Minneapolis. She briefly attended University of Minnesota and hated it, but eventually landed at Parsons School of Design in New York. Perfect. So she only lasted a year at Parsons, but she just... (laughs) No, but... I know, I know. Okay, but I do have to say that she found out, like, maybe school wasn't for her, but she loved New York. I mean, New York, with her personality, her temperament, it was, like, love at first sight. Yeah, and in the 80s? In the late 80s? Like, she was, like, living, like, Sex in the City before Sex in the City. So she did what we did, except for, you know, we only went to school once rather than dropping out a million times. She started working at restaurants. Perfect. Yeah. And so you know how it is. Like, you're a young, beautiful woman. You can make crazy money working in high-end restaurants. Is that what she did? Yeah, that's what she did. She worked in some really, like, high-end places and made a ton of money. But she did have to, again, with the follow-through, she kind of had to work in a couple places because she had a temper. So she would get into fights with her bosses and then get fired, obviously. But she she did well. She always got hired at new places. She also still liked to party. So the restaurant lifestyle really fit what she wanted in her life. She would, like, work all night, you know, do some blow, and then, like, go out till the morning light. You know how it is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I should say you know how it is. I mean, just, yeah, rude. I don't know how it is. I know what you're speaking of. Yes, I mean, you know the situation I'm describing. I mean, the funny thing is, like, how many times have you ever seen me up past 2 a.m.? when Never, not down? even, not even when we were 21. <laughs> Guys, that was not for Andy. That was just a general, like, you know how it is. <laughs> I would, like, ninja out so hard. I'd be like, bye. Yes. I mean, if any one of us is the party animal in this duo, it's definitely me. Um, So yeah, she was having a great time. She did keep one very good girlfriend from Parsons, a Park Avenue socialite named Allison Gertz. And in the late summer of 1987, Nancy convinced Allie to take a trip to Club Med and Turks and Caicos. They arrived on separate flights, but on the same exact day as Rob and his college buddy, Mike. In fact, the four young people first met on a nude beach. And for Rob, it was lust at first sight. He famously said to Nancy, I bet you'd look great with your clothes on. Oh my God, stop. That is a great line for a nude beach. (laughs) The attraction was immediate. And the couple really just hit it off right away. This is how Joe McGinnis described them. To Rob, Nancy personified everything hip and stylish and daring and free. She was New York in all of its sophistication, glamour, and allure. She was sparkly and saucy and had that street-smart veneer she'd been striving for. Plus, she was Jewish. 
To Nancy, Rob personified everything she wanted in a husband. He was good-looking and hard-bodied, clever and ambitious, well-educated and smart. And she soon intuited from a family that was, at least by New Jersey standards, filthy rich. Plus, he was Jewish. (sighs) Match mate in nude beach. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's one way to just dive right in. You you don't have any... Any secrets, physical secrets there. Yeah. You know what you're getting. That's one instance where less is definitely more. Yes. <laughs> Rob and Nancy dated exclusively for a year and then moved in together. When Rob graduated NYU with his master's, he proposed to Nancy, who accepted with glee. Shortly after graduation, he scored a great job as an investment banker with a company called Ladenburg Thalman. Bill, Rob's father, didn't approve of Nancy from the start, rudely calling her that waitress and wishing his favorite son would marry somebody with a college degree. He would, like, say this to her face, too. That's so fucked. Yeah, Bill's a jerk. Nonetheless, Rob and Nancy married in September of 1989, only a few months after Rob's mother, Elaine, died, sadly. Nancy chose her friend Allie Gertz to be her maid of honor. The year before, Allie had discovered that she was dying of AIDS. Oh, my God. I know. It's so tragic. But, you know, she tried to do something good with her diagnosis. Rather than retreat and suffer silently, Allie boldly decided to step into the spotlight and raise awareness. I mean, this is 1980s when people were still completely in the dark ages about HIV AIDS. And, of course, many at this time were so incorrectly dismissing this as some sort of problem for for gay men or drug users, you know? Yep. Yep. So it meant a lot for this Park Avenue princess to attempt to destigmatize the virus. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, she really did it too. I mean, she went out there, she spoke passionately about it. She was she did an interview with Barbara Walters. She was on the cover of People magazine. I mean, she spoke passionately about AIDS awareness until her death in 1992, after which Molly Ringwald played her in a TV movie called Something to Live For. Oh, my God. Yes. But in September of 1989, Allie was just being Nancy's maid of honor. While the girls were getting ready, Allie was explaining all of the various pills she would have to take throughout the day. She was basically saying no matter how much of a good time I'm having, I have to remember to take this for my health, especially the AZT that she needed to take every four hours. As she's explaining this to Brenna O'Shea, the other bridesmaid, Nancy snapped at her. Just shut up, Allie. This is my day. Nobody wants to hear about your fucking pills. Oh. Yeah, bridezilla or just terrible person. Wow. I don't know if that passes as just bridezilla. I don't think so either. So the wedding was held on a beautiful day at the East River Yacht Club across the East River from Manhattan. The bride and groom were stunning, both good-looking and full of promise. But later, Nancy would complain that Allie Gertz had ruined the day. Allie was a young, beautiful celebrity who spent most of the reception talking about AIDS, and Nancy felt like it stole her spotlight. Nancy cruelly cut Allie off after the wedding and never spoke to her dying friend ever again. That is so sad. It's so sad and it's very indicative of Nancy's vindictive nature, you know? This was not an uncommon occurrence. This ruthlessness and ability to cut people off was just a trait of her personality. Rob's friend Mike, who was also 
on that first meeting trip, you know, he had also married and they lived in the same building as the Kissels. The two couples often socialized together. And there was one occasion in which they were all supposed to go out together. And Mike's wife actually called Nancy and told her that she was sick and she couldn't make it. But then later on, Nancy saw the couple totally healthy, getting in a taxi to go do something else. And she was so angry that she cut off all contact with them and refused to let her husband ever speak to his best friend ever again. (sighs) They lived in the same building for like four more years after this. And he wasn't allowed to so much as say hello to this guy. Why? What was she going to do? Kill him? I I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. Rob Star rose and he started making millions of dollars a year as an investment banker. The couple moved to Greenwich Village and had their first child, a little girl named Isabel. Now, all of the kids' names in this are all pseudonyms that Joe McGinnis chose. So just so you know, they're not the real names of the real kids. Nancy didn't take naturally to motherhood. She found it stifling and boring. In fact, there was very few people that she felt close to, and she had even a hard time getting close to her kids. Even her best friend, Brenna O'Shea, felt like their relationship was very surface level, very superficial. And Brenna even said that she thought that that's why it worked. She said that Nancy didn't like people digging too deep into her psyche. She wasn't somebody that like wanted to share her like deepest, darkest soul and secrets. And she's like, I honestly think I was her only friend because I never pushed for a deeper relationship, you know? Yeah, she was fine with that. Exactly. One person who Nancy felt extremely close to was her paternal grandmother. So when her grandmother was dying, Nancy flew out to Evanston, Illinois to be with her in her last moments. I know where that is. Yeah, so this is like points to Nancy. She sounds like a terrible person, but at least she took care of her grandmother and loved her, you know? Yep. So her grandmother willed her her most prized possession, a lead statuette of two little girls that Nancy's parents had given her 30 years before. Okay. To Nancy, it represented love, hope, and a closeness she lacked in her own life. It would remain one of her most treasured objects. It became even more meaningful when Nancy had a second child, another little girl named Zoe. Around this time, Rob was poached by Goldman Sachs, and the family began to prepare for a move to Hong Kong, where Rob would do a three-year tour. Meanwhile, brother Andrew had gone into real estate after graduation from BU and married the impressive Haley Wolf. Haley and Andrew met at Stratton Mountain, where Haley trained as a world-class competitive skier. She was smart, tough, and charming. After graduating UPenn, she obtained her master's degree in finance at Columbia and was a stock analyst at Merrill Lynch. Wow. She was highly accomplished, and she was also the daughter of an obscenely wealthy man, the CEO of a major international engineering firm. Like, they did, like, international airports. Like, they engineered the architecture of these places. And his money was so extreme that it made Bill Kissel's wealth look like chump change. So Bill didn't like that. He didn't like that her father had more money than him. But he did respect Haley at first. In fact, he, to all of the children's faces, would say that Haley should have married Robert instead of Andrew. And that Andrew should have just ended up with the waitress instead. Can you imagine saying this to your children? He's Is he like in the right state of mind? I I don't know. I mean, you could probably do a psych textbook on this guy. This is actually called How Not to Raise Your Children, a memoir by Bill Kissel. Yeah, it's, it's totally insane. And he just felt like 
his favorite son should have ended up with the Ivy League heiress and his least favorite son should have ended up with the quote waitress. So the whole family didn't get along. Like it, they several times throughout this book, Joe McGinnis will talk about family get togethers and he he really gets into it. Like guys, it is like a <laughs> Jerry Springer episode talking about when they have family get togethers. Like this just goes to show you doesn't matter how much money you have. Dysfunction is possible in every family, everywhere. And that, like, money doesn't actually buy class. It doesn't buy class or happiness, you know? It was made worse. So Andrew borrowed $500,000 from Robert to start his real estate company. And he was essentially buying up condos and houses in up-and-coming areas like Hoboken and Jersey City. And Nancy was is super smart and and he did really well. Nancy was really upset about this though because she did not want to be raising her own children at all and he hadn't gotten her a nanny yet so she was like literally quoted as saying you give a half a million dollars to your slumlord brother well I have to go without a nanny. Slumlord, that's what she said. The waitress said. The way that's what the waitress said. <laughs> Yeah, and so Andrew, while he's doing well with these properties, he is really, really greedy. He became the treasurer of the co-op board in the building that he and Haley owned a one-bedroom apartment in in Manhattan. And starting in January of 1996, he began to regularly wire funds from the co-op board into his own accounts. Aww. Yeah, so Andrew starts embezzling, which is no bueno. No bueno. No. And this is just the beginning of some of his illegal and shady activity. So the Kissel family still got together at Stratton Mountain. But as I described, it was always a nightmare. It was just like insults after insults. And Andrew was doing cocaine at this point. So he would get drunk and on coke and then he'd scream back at his father. It was just a nightmare. So little sister Jane actually married a guy that was like totally not from their world. He wasn't Jewish. He he wasn't raised the same way. And they moved to Seattle. She's like, I'm out of here. You guys are all crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting out of this, you know, hornet's nest, you know? So yeah, Nancy was like really relieved when Rob got the job in Hong Kong because she's like, you know what, let's get away from your family. And and she was excited too because she had heard from all of these other women that were married to Goldman Sachs investors that the expat life was really nice in Hong Kong. And, and yep. you know, your money went further than it did in Manhattan at this point. So she was she was jazzed about this. So they moved into the previously described Parkview development and they started on the 16th floor of Tower 14. But of course, Nancy had her eyes on Tower 17, which through Rob's work successes, she would eventually get. She also received the domestic help she had so desired back in New York City. Rob and Nancy hired live-in help with a nanny named Connie and her cousin Min, who was the housekeeper. The two women lived in a converted pantry behind the kitchen and worked six days a week. Whoa. Yeah, that's so intense. It also sounds like, as you'll see, they were doing everything. I mean, they must have been working from the moment they got up until the kids went to bed. For you know? sure. With Rob working 16-hour days, six days a week himself, and the kids completely taken care of by Connie and Min, Nancy became bored and lonely. She felt a profound lack of control over her own life, and she began to spend frivolously to give her life meaning. It's not going to do it, honey. 
No. I mean, the only thing is in this case, at least they can afford it. You know, we we always talk about there's a lot of women who have and men. I mean, definitely men. But like in the cases we've talked about, mostly women who have spending addictions in in this case, at least they're not going to go into debt about it. You know? Yeah. It's just it's it's just meaningless. Yeah. It's you have to do the work and, you know, see a therapist and find things that gives your life meaning, you know? Yeah. Because then if you do that then you might be able to see more of the light with your kids too, you know? And especially because her mom suffered anxiety. Yeah, it sounds like she just didn't have a very good model of motherhood and she wasn't naturally warm. So that was maybe not a good fit for her. And I think if if you're not inclined to motherhood and then you feel forced into a role as a stay-at-home mom – it could be very jarring. I think a lot of women do realize that they have more affection and love for their children if they get to do something else with their lives and time for many of the hours of the day. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. Not everyone has to feel like motherhood is their end all be all, you know? I feel like it's the other way around. I think it's great when you have an extracurricular even if it's not like a job, like something else that you do that you're like, okay, I'm going to go do this for a few hours. I'll see you later. 100%. Yeah. Nancy did not have that. She never, she never found that thing. So it was just basically shopping. In 1998, after surviving lung cancer surgery, Nancy's mother, Jean, and her husband celebrated by visiting Nancy in Hong Kong and then boarding a cruise ship for Singapore. She found her daughter out of control and completely depended upon her nanny. The following scene unfolded during this visit as written in Never Enough by Joe McGinnis. So first of all, Nancy was just complaining about Rob the entire visit. Nancy spoke of Rob only to complain about him. He was almost never home. When he was, all he did was criticize. He was constantly scolding her for not paying enough attention to the children. On the second and last day of Jean's visit, Nancy was in the middle of explaining how unreasonable and demanding Rob was when two-year-old Zoe, who had been playing on the floor nearby, began to scream. Zoe was more temperamental than Isabel. She would melt down at the slightest provocation, sometimes apparently for no reason at all. Jean was full of grandmotherly love, but screaming children had always set her teeth on edge. Can't you make her be quiet, Jean said? Connie will deal with it if she ever gets out here. Connie, I need you right now. Hurry up. Still screaming, Zoe started to punch and kick at her mother. Poor baby. I know, this poor girl. She just wants attention from her mother, you know? Can't you control her? Stay out of this, Mom. Zoe was now writhing on the living room floor. Connie raced in from another part of the apartment. She carried Zoe to her room and closed the door. Slowly, the screaming subsided. Nancy, Jean said, I think it's time that you learn to take care of your children yourself. Nancy gasped. Then, and even years later, Jean did not know how to say it. Nancy went berserk. She charged at Jean, grabbed her, and yanked her off the couch. And now, remember that she had just had surgery. Yeah, lung cancer surgery. Uh Uh-huh, lung cancer surgery. Never robust, Jean had been especially frail since her surgery. Screaming even louder than Zoe had and using language that Zoe wouldn't learn for years, Nancy propelled her mother down the hallway. Don't you ever tell me how to handle my own children. She squeezed Jean's shoulders and pushed her up against the door. Get out, get out, get out of my house. I never want to see your fucking face again. Nancy 
opened the door and gave Jean a shove hard enough to make her stumble into the hallway and slammed the door in her mother's face. Wow. Real nice. She pounded on the door, begging Nancy to let her back in. There was no response. She pounded and begged until she was too exhausted to continue. She took a taxi to the cruise ship in tears. And then she twice tried to call Nancy the first time. As soon as Nancy heard Jean's voice, she started swearing at her again and hung up the phone. And then the second time, Connie answered and said that she couldn't come to the phone. And basically... All of her subsequent calls went completely unanswered. She had completely cut her mother off at that point. Wow. I mean, she is a cold-ass bitch. Yeah. There was another occasion later on where Brenna O'Shea was going to visit her in Hong Kong. Brenna lived in San Francisco. And Jean was in touch with Brenna. And she's like, hey, can you bring this heirloom piece of jewelry to Nancy. It's like my way of an, as apology. She won't take my calls and just tell her how sad I am that we had this falling out. And so she didn't hear from Brenna until after she returned from Hong Kong and she called her and she's like, Hey, how did the, the necklace go? Did it, was it well received? And she's like, Jean, I am so sorry. I just don't even want to tell you what she said. And Jean's like, no, 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 it's cool. Just tell me. And she was like, mm, I like the necklace. It's too bad that she'll never see her grandchildren again. So over like just the smallest comment to cut your entire mother off. That's crazy. So for God knows what reason, Rob decided that they should add another child to this hot mess. Oh, no. No. We always say it. More children and threesomes do not fix marriages. More children, more problems. More children, more problems. More people in your bed, more problems. <laughs> I guess it's only if you, only if you're like not handling it well already. Like if you've got it down and you're like, I can do this. Like more power to you. But yeah, I actually I find that women that I know that have large families are like the chillest, coolest, like go with the flow, like power mamas. Yeah, you know. She does not have that vibe. That is not what's going on here. (laughs) I couldn't tell. So, yeah, he was really pushing for it. He wanted a son, which is so lame. So lame when dudes are like, I want a boy. Although, you know, I I did really want a boy (laughs) when I got pregnant with Gus. Also huge in Chinese culture as well. And if they're – he might have gotten that from some of his, you know – I know he's in Hong Kong, but from some Chinese colleagues. Perhaps. perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. So he really wanted a boy. So he was pressuring Nancy to have a third child. And she actually complained to Brenna about this. Like she didn't want to. She was very, I mean, this is the other problem of not having a passion or, you know, something that you feel good about is that she was very tied to her looks. So she told Brenna, she was like, of course he wants to have another baby because it's not going to cost him the last of his looks. Yeah, you can't really think about pregnancy that way. (laughs) Like, unless you are an actual model and your business is having a perfect face and body or something, like, you cannot get in your head about it because it's so secondary to the life you're creating and the family you're making that, I mean, I know we all struggle with this, but it just, you just can't. You have to love the body you're in. You have to love the family you made, you know? Yeah, but she doesn't. She doesn't. She's very unhappy at this point. Yeah. And she is is 
gets more unhappy because Rob does get his way. They do end up getting pregnant in February of nineteen And it was a boy. Thank goodness. So, oh my God. What if it ended up being another girl? I mean, I think it's kind of cool. Like I told Nathaniel, like if we if we had had a second girl, I think I would have gone for a third just because I feel like three girls is like a gang. <laughs> A girlfriend of mine has three sisters and she's a girl and it's four daughters. And I'm like, that's so cool. It's so cool. It seems like it would be so fun because then you're like the so-and-so sisters, you know? (laughs) You can form a family band at that point. (laughs) So yeah, they did have a little boy named Ethan at this point. It was a rough time for the marriage. There had been a huge East Asian financial crisis And so Rob had been working like crazy, and he actually did stunningly well. I mean, he was working in distressed debt, so it was kind of a good time for what type of banking he was doing. And he did so well that they were rewarded before Ethan arrived by up-towering to the coveted and expensive Tower 17. So it it should be like everything's perfect. They have the, the fanciest place in Parkview now, the best apartment. They just had their little baby boy. Their family is complete. And outwardly, people really did think that they were killing it. They were like, look at this couple. They're they're getting everything they could possibly want. But behind closed doors, Nancy suffered from postpartum depression really bad. And it didn't get better because she was fighting with Rob so much. Like essentially, Rob was saying, can you cook for like a healthy meal for the kids sometimes? Cause she was just like letting them eat McDonald's every night or something. Can you like maybe once in a while do their bath and bedtime routine because Connie was doing that and, and they were essentially being raised by Connie. And so he would come home and see that, you know, she wasn't participating in mothering and really lay into her. It was, I mean, I could understand his perspective, he wants his partner involved in raising his children, but also she has postpartum depression. She's not, she's barely hanging on being a for human herself. and yeah. for herself, let alone like you are now debasing her ability to do her one job, which is how he's putting it to her. Like, you know, you don't have a job, your job is the kids and you're not doing it. And that's very harmful. So, yeah, it was just, and so they would get into these huge fights about it, especially because. Rob wasn't really around. He was working these 16-hour days, six days a week. So she's like, yep. she would. She was quoted as saying, you're a fucking five-minute father. You come in here for like two seconds, come in late, wake the kids up, then guess who has to put them back to bed? Me. Yeah. You yeah. don't get to come in here and tell me how to raise my children when you're not around here. Messy. It's a mess. It's messy, messy, messy. So one thing that Nancy had been looking forward to was moving back to New York as Rob's three-year contract in Hong Kong was up. And that dream was dashed when Rob accepted a wildly lucrative position with Merrill Lynch that would keep them in Hong Kong for a new minimum of three years. Okay. So she's really depressed at this point. The only good thing she said was that she was so upset about this and Rob had some guilt about this that she was like, okay, fine, but can we buy a Stratton Mountain house because the family still went to Stratton Mountain for holidays because the whole family was centered there. And she wanted a house that was bigger and better than Andrew and Haley's house. All the wrong reasons. All the wrong reasons. So he consented to buying her a $2 million mountain house and also gave her a $1 million renovation budget. It's crazy. That's something to do though. 
it is something to do. So she got to take that project on, which was yep. really exciting for her. And she really liked that type of stuff. So this was something that was moving in a positive direction. Yeah. So she also got to take the kids and Connie for a visit to New York City. She basically, this is so terrible. She left the kids with the nanny in the hotel when she went like shopping and out to socialize with her friends. Like, you know, she didn't take the kids to a museum or anything. She didn't like do all of the amazing things you can do in New York City with children, go to the zoo, go to, you know, (laughs) go to Central Park. No, she left them in the hotel and just went out and like partied and shopped the whole time. So it was during one of these outings that Nancy and her friend Brenna took in a movie. The movie was Unfaithful. Have you ever seen Unfaithful? With Diane Lane? That movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in the movie, Diane Lane is a bored, wealthy suburban housewife who strikes up a passionate affair with a hot young man behind her husband's back. The husband, played by Richard Gere, eventually kills the lover and disposes of his body by rolling it into a carpet and carrying it out of the building. That's why it sounded familiar. Uh Uh-huh. In the movie, Richard Gere does not get caught. So she also told Britta at this point, she's like, this is why people have affairs. I don't have that in my relationship. Like, I very much relate to Diane Lane's character. She told this to Britta. That Christmas, the entire Kissel family went to Whistler Mountain to celebrate, and everyone bickered and fought as usual. But new this time is that usually Rob and Nancy were a united front together, and everyone could tell that they also were fighting. And apparently they got into this terrible fight about whether Nancy was going to go skiing with the family. Apparently Ethan had gotten sick. They didn't have Connie there. So she wanted to stay home. He wanted her to go skiing and get somebody from the hotel to watch Ethan. So later, Nancy would claim that when they were having this argument, that Rob hit her and pushed her down a flight of stairs. Uh, That can kill someone. Yes. So we don't know whether or not this actually occurred because she didn't tell anyone about it. No one on that trip, you know, she didn't have any marks on her body. She didn't, she didn't tell anyone on the trip or back in Hong Kong. And nobody in Hong Kong remembered her ever having any sort of bruises or any, anything that would accompany it. So I definitely do not want to suggest that it didn't happen, but there was never any Proof. And this didn't come out until much later. Okay. But she did end up taking Ethan and leaving early, which apparently really did infuriate Rob. And that was corroborated by other people who were like, yes, yeah, she left. Rob was really pissed about it. By March of the following year in 2003, SARS was a major concern and just ripping across Asia. If you are a younger listener, you might not remember SARS, but it was like the OG COVID. Yep. Do you remember that? That was that was like when oh we God, were going yeah. to college. Yeah. Yeah. I was graduating high school. Mm-hmm. SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and it's similar to COVID in a lot of ways, but it was contained fairly quickly before it got to the United States. And was that from an animal? It came from people eating a mast palm civet. It is an animal about the size of a weasel. It closely resembles the Chinese ferret badger. And apparently 
It was a delicacy nearly as coveted as shark fin. The fresher, the better, which meant the chef would either have his civets killed in the market while he watched or bring a few live ones back to the restaurant to kill in the kitchen himself as customers placed orders. Oof. Not infrequently, a group preparing to feast on civet would require the chef to bring their table the live civets he'd be cooking for them. Oh, man. There was only one problem. The cute and tasty civet harbored in its saliva and feces a virus that, when transmitted to humans, caused the previously unknown and potentially fatal disease called SARS. Ick, ick, ick. Oh, do you want to get grosser? I'm sorry, we're taking a quick aside from true crime to talk about SARS because this one story that Joe McGinnis wrote in his book scarred me, truly, about how SARS spread. So one of the early breakout spots that they traced the SARS epidemic in Hong Kong to was the Prince of Wales Hospital. One of those infected at Prince of Wales was a 33-year-old Shenzhen man who had come to the hospital regularly for kidney dialysis. He began to display symptoms on March 14th during an overnight visit to his brother who lived in Block E. His was one of the 20% of SARS cases in which the symptoms included diarrhea. So his brother's apartment complex was called Amoy Gardens, and it was a typical Hong Kong housing estate. It had been built more than 20 years earlier, and its 20,000 residents were crammed in eight to a floor, 500-square-foot apartment units in a cluster of towers, each 30 stories high. From a public health standpoint, it was not an ideal place for someone infected with the SARS virus to have diarrhea. Later investigations showed that a design defect in the U-shaped water traps connected to the bathroom floor drains permitted sewage droplets contaminated with the virus to be sucked into the bathroom when the exhaust fan was used. The fan then blew the droplets into a narrow airwell between buildings from which they entered neighboring apartments through open windows. Within 10 days of the infected man's overnight stay, more than 300 Amoy Garden residents, most from Block E and the neighboring Block D, grew ill with SARS. One guy has diarrhea and then 300 people in the building are sick. Is that, are you losing your mind about this? Gross. Okay. So at this point, Rob is like, yeah, I'm getting y'all to America because this is SARS Central right now and I want you all to be safe. So they fly into New York City and originally they planned to stay in New York City and they have Connie with them as well. And it's just Nancy, Connie, and the children at this point. Rob stays in Hong Kong. But after they find out that none of the private schools will take the kids because of the SARS risk, they decide to move to the Stratton Mountain, Vermont house where the schools were a little less stringent and let the kids in. I was going to ask you where Stratton Mountain was. I wasn't sure. It's in Vermont, yeah. With his family away, Rob started calling Brenna O'Shea, hoping that his wife's closest friend would have some suggestions about how to get their marriage back on track. And Brenna was like, dude, you know what? I've heard about your issues from her. Like, I'll give you a little bit of advice, but there's not much I can do. If you want to be, you know, call me to vent, I guess you can, but I don't know how to get through to Nancy either, basically. So he starts like calling Brenna like three times a week almost to talk about Nancy and what's going on in their relationship and how they can fix it. Is this going in what direction I think it's going in? Maybe. There's always a chance for romance in the show with 
random people. So Rob's suffering through his marital issues. His brother Andrew has his own problems. And though Andrew had claimed at this point to have amassed a $20 million fortune through his real estate firm, and he had even renovated two apartments at his building into a stunning $3 million duplex, the jig was soon up when the co-op bird caught him with his hand in the till. So Andrew admitted to the theft. He paid $1 million in restitution and he sold the duplex. Haley, Andrew, and their two young daughters moved into a $15,000 a month mansion rental in Greenwich, Connecticut. Still, the co-op board believed that Andrew hadn't come totally clean. In April of 2003, they hired outside auditors who uncovered that since 1996, Andrew had siphoned more than $4.5 million from the co-op accounts. Whoa. Yeah, he was even doing stuff like he would make up fake companies. Like he would start like a bank account for like X and Z landscaping and then he would pay that account. And so that it looked like above board when they're looking at the balances and they were just like how they figured it out was that none of the work was getting done that he claimed what he was doing, you know? Yep, yep. So yeah, to avoid prosecution, he began settlement negotiations. Meanwhile, Rob came back to the States to discuss his new role at Merrill Lynch and to visit his family in Vermont. Nancy was cold and Kurt barely speaking to him. Rob was particularly sad when Nancy let his 40th birthday go by with not so much as a happy birthday. Oh my God. I know. And she didn't imagine that. She didn't tell the kids that it was daddy's birthday either. So imagine he's expecting like a family party And his kids don't even know it's his birthday either. And his 40th birthday, which is a landmark birthday, went completely unacknowledged and uncelebrated. It's really sad. It is super sad. And, like, I do do feel for Rob. I do. I know that, like, maybe there's some situations where he could be handling Nancy's postpartum depression better. But, I mean, for the most part, he works really hard for this family, you know? And, like, She knew when she married a guy who wanted to be an investment banker that these were going to be his hours. I mean, everybody knows that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Rob knew that the two had their issues, but he began to suspect Nancy's new coldness was the result of an extramarital affair. Okay. So I just defended Rob with Richard Gere. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I just defended Rob, but this part is not good. So he ends up buying top-of-the-line spyware. And it's called Spectre Pro plus eBlaster, and he had it installed on Nancy's Vermont computer. I think if you have to get spyware on your loved one, that marriage, the ship has sailed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. This enabled Rob to access her computer remotely at any point, which he used to read her emails. While home installing the nefarious spyware, Rob also hired a man named Michael Del Priore to install a $35,000 home theater system. This would be a huge mistake as Nancy had an almost immediate attraction to the handsome blue-collar New Hampshire man. Oh no, the theater guy. The home theater installation man and TV repair man. Yeah. So all the pictures I found of him are a little grainy, but he kind of looks like Ray Liotta. Mm. Yeah, he's cute. He's cute. When Rob went back to Hong Kong, Nancy started inviting Michael and his young daughter on play dates. After a couple of innocent dates, Nancy invited Michael to accompany her to get a tattoo. She said that her controlling husband refused to allow her to get one, and she no longer wanted to be under his thumb. 
So Michael went with her to a Brattleboro tattoo shop where she got what do white women love getting tattoos of? Chinese symbols. Of course. Bingo. First guess. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> oh, did it translate properly at least? Oh, probably not. It probably said this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so she hopefully got what she asked for, which was the Chinese symbols. Wait, let me guess. 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 Okay. Love, life, laughter. <laughs> No, no, that would have been really good. That's really, really good. Um, it was her uh, kids' birthdays. So the Chinese symbol for each of their birthdays. So she got that on her shoulder. I guess each symbol was like the size of a quarter on her shoulder. Afterwards, the two went to dinner where Nancy downed a shot of tequila. She said to him, I just feel like a girl with a tattoo would drink a shot of tequila. Okay, girl. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, and she got a little messy. Michael didn't drink, so he was stone cold sober. And she ended up also doing a shot of Jaeger later. So then she's a little drunk and she just starts like on the ride home crying her eyes out, like just oh, hysterically no. crying. She is basically telling him that Robert's controlling, that he's emotionally abusive, and that he was the first man that's ever like really looked at her and heard her and paid attention and cared about her feelings. And he just, like, held her hand and he comforted her and an affair was born. I mean, she was hook, line, and sinker for him at that point. So the two began trading flirty emails, which, of course, Rob was reading. He was alarmed by the tone of the messages, but it still wasn't completely crystal clear. They weren't like, ooh, we banged last night. It was so good, you know? Like, they're just kind of flirty. So at this point, he's like, I have a suspicion something's going on with this guy, but I don't know for sure. So he hires a very well-regarded New York City-based private eye named Frank Shea to investigate Nancy and Michael. Oh, my God. That so sounds like a private eye name. Frank Shea. Yeah. And he's a Vietnam vet who is also a homicide detective. Oh, my God. Before he started his own private investigation firm called Alpha Group. Oh, my God. Of course. I know. It's perfect. So the firm did corporate investigations like computer data retrieval, installation and removal of electronic surveillance devices and GPS trackers. And they mostly were in like the corporate espionage sector, but they decided to take Rob's matrimonial work because his pockets were deep and he was connected to like high finance internationally. Yeah. So Frank took the job and sent an ex-Marine named Rocco Gatta to tail Nancy and Michael in Vermont. Rocco Gatta. Rocco Gatta. What a name. Okay. Wow. Yep. So Nancy by now had disconnected some wires behind the TV to lure Michael back after their tattoo date. And she was like, oops, the TV's not working. Can you come over and fix it? Oh, my God. Uh-huh. And so when he did come over, she lured him into the guest room. And then he really came over. Precisely. <laughs> or not so precisely. I don't know how it went down. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But suffice to say, it went down. So Frank soon reported back to Rob that something was certainly up with Nancy and Michael. Michael's van had been spotted at the Kissel's Stratton house twice during off work hours, essentially staying from 7 p.m. to midnight-ish. 
Though he didn't stay the night, something definitely seemed up. Rob immediately called Brenna in anguish, declaring in unsavory language that Nancy was, quote, fucking the stereo boy. Oh, Brenna no. was shocked, not only by Nancy's alleged affair, but also Rob's insane surveillance on his own wife. She was like, y'all both doing bad stuff. Like, yes, she should not be cheating on you, but why are why do you have spyware and a PI tailing her? Like, this is not good. This is not how a healthy marriage functions. Rob flew back to New York City to take a work meeting, and he also saw Brenna and Frank Shea while he was in town. He expressed frustration and anger, but told both people that he wanted to reconcile with his wife. They both advised him to confront her and repair their marriage. They're basically like, look, obviously you guys have had problems. Nancy's been searching for something. She found it with this fling, but she's not going to leave her high-flying, multimillionaire life to move into this guy's mobile home. He like literally lived in a mobile home, you know? So you really think that's going to happen? No. They're like, she's way too shallow for that. She's so brutal that her best friend is like, no, she's such a shallow bitch. She'll never go for that. But yeah, that's basically what they said. So they're like, if you want to fix this marriage, you confront her, you guys come clean, you get into counseling and you work on this relationship, you know? Yeah. So he did confront her about Michael but Nancy denied everything. She denied the affair. She tried to say basically that they had become friendly because the girls were friends with each other, that the, their kids were playing together. And that sometimes he would come for dinner, but like, you know, there's nothing there. And she just was like, you're crazy if you think something's going on. And she kind of gaslit him a little bit about this. Yeah. When Rob returned to Hong Kong, she feared he was tapping her phone, so she began a cycle of breaking up with Michael when she got paranoid and then taking him back only days later because she missed him. And this was, like, kind of ironic because she thought he was tapping her phone, so she'd be like, let's just communicate via email. <laughs> and he's reading those emails. But so she keeps being like, he knows stuff. So he would know stuff, basically, from the emails, and then he would make comments, and then she's like, oh, my God, he's listening to me. And so this was set this weird cycle in motion. Rob did end up suffering a devastating back injury while playing tennis in Hong Kong, and it required hospitalization. So while he was laid up, she what she was most terrified was him catching her in the act. And so she thought that he would, like, maybe just come to Vermont without telling her to surprise her. So when she knew he was in the hospital, she celebrated by leaving the kids with Connie and just banging this guy all over motels in Vermont and New Hampshire for the entire time her husband was in a hospital bed in Hong Kong. So they brought Connie to America? Yes. Connie was in America with them. Okay. Yep. So, yeah, she also bought her lover not one, but two $7,200 Concord Impresario watches at the Movado store. During one of these romps, Nancy tearfully confided in Michael that Robert had become abusive when he confronted her about the affair. She claimed that Rob bruised or broke her ribs in the fight. Meanwhile, Rob is still reading her emails, which prove that the affair is definitely still on. So he hires Rocco to go back up to Vermont and wants to call the house while Del Priori is inside. So essentially, he's like, this is still going on. Get up there. The moment you see him in his van in there, I want to call. So like, let me know, you know. He wants to like catch them in the act as much as he can. So basically, Rocco alerts him one night, and apparently she was up in the bedroom. Like, he came in after the the kids were asleep, 
and she brought him right up to the bedroom and Rob starts calling. And at first it was just going to answering machine and he just keeps calling and calling and calling. And then he gets Connie and Connie's like, she's, she can't come to the phone right now. And he's like, I don't care what you have to do. You break into that bedroom and you tell her that she's getting on the phone with me right now. So this is how it went down, according to Joe McGinnis. Rob's phone call changed everything. Nancy panicked when Connie knocked on the bedroom door. She was in an even worse state 20 minutes later when she ran back up the stairs after talking to Rob on his cell phone. You've got to get out of here right now, she told Michael. I don't know where he is, but he knows you're here. He must be spying on us. He could turn up here any minute. Nancy couldn't tell where Rob was calling from. He could be as close as the village at the foot of the hill. You've got to go, Michael. You've got to go. She had turned pale and was gasping for breath. Oh my God, I think I'm having an asthma attack. Hurry, Michael. He can't find you here. Oh my God, I'm fucked. I don't know what he'll do to me. I'll call you as soon as I can. Michael drove away fast. The next day, Nancy and Zoe and Ethan and Connie drove to JFK and boarded a flight to Hong Kong. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, Michael later told authorities like she did seem really terrified of her husband. We don't know if there was really abuse happening or... Or if she was setting up it to look that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Rob did tell Brenna that when she came back to Hong Kong, she was totally different. Like she was being sweet and contrite. She was randomly very loving with him, which she hadn't been like for years. So he was like, if she could stay like this and we could have this type of relationship, I'd be happy forever. But he didn't completely trust it, of course. he The trust was completely broken in the relationship. So he had consulted with a divorce attorney before her return, like when he found out that Michael was in the house. But he put it on hold while she was behaving loving toward him. So Rob was happy when Nancy agreed to accompany him on a trip back to New York City so he could get spinal surgery following his back injury. But his joy turned to paranoia when he considered the fact that Nancy could be using the trip back to the States to see her lover while he was incapacitated. Well, Rob was right to worry because Michael had come to New York City to see Nancy while she was there. The illicit pair took carriage rides around Central Park and engaged in sex in a hotel stairwell before Nancy returned to her laid-up husband. Oh, my God. Ruthless. So ruthless. While canoodling with Michael, Nancy expressed fear at the potential beating she would take if Rob discovered her with Michael and also expressed that she wished he had died on the operating table. Oh, my God. She literally told her lover, she's like, I wish the surgeon had uh, nicked something while he was in there. Okay, that's horrid. Horrid. I mean, that's the father of your children. It was clear by now that Nancy wished her husband dead. So Nancy returned to Hong Kong while Robert continued to recover in New York. And then she engaged in some very suspicious Googling. From Never Enough, during the 10 days between her own arrival in Hong Kong and Rob's return, Nancy conducted internet searches using the following terms, sleeping pills, drug overdose, and medication causing heart attack. On Sunday, August 24th, I know all these people are such dumb Googlers. Dumb, dumb. 
dum-dums. On Sunday, August 24th, she also made her first call on her new cell phone. She'd set it up so she'd be billed at the Hong Kong International School, which is where the kids went to school. She thought of it as her Michael phone. She would use it only to talk to him. Rob would never see the bills. She'd take cash out of the ATM and open a secret checking account and use that to pay the bills. She was proud of herself for planning so well. So apparently the same day that she made all those sketchy searches, she also talked on the phone with Michael for four hours. I keep being like, how do you have time for this? But then I'm like, oh, yeah, she doesn't watch the kids at all. She doesn't raise her children. She doesn't work. She doesn't have any hobbies, apparently. I guess she did some volunteering at her kids' schools taking pictures. But that was apparently not enough time that she didn't have time to talk to her lover for four hours. Even more suspicious than the Googling is that when Rob returned and drank single malt scotch out of a crystal decanter they kept in their sitting room, he fell into a deep, drugged slumber. So the first time that this happened, he was like, huh, I'm still on a little pain medication from the spinal surgery. Maybe it was the booze interacting with the meds. But when it happened a second time, he became convinced that Nancy was drugging his whiskey. In September, Frank Shea visited Rob in Hong Kong, and Rob confided that he no longer took any food or beverage from Nancy because after he stopped drinking the scotch, he had fallen asleep in the morning after he drank a coffee she gave him. Wow. Not being sly at all. It's just, so. what's your end game? Like, hoping that it would stop his heart, like the cocktail medicine or something? That's crazy. He also told Frank that he had discovered love letters from Michael in one of Nancy's handbags, and they insinuated that they were going to see each other because they talked about being reunited. So he was now concerned about that as well. Yeah. Frank expressed concern for Rob and suggested he change his $10 million life insurance policy to a different beneficiary. Wow. You think? Yeah. <laughs> Frank also wanted Rob to send him a vial of the whiskey so he could test it for drugs. Like, Rob said, yes, I'll do it. But then later, he's like, no, it's fine. Apparently, she'd been nicer to him. And he was like, it, that's probably overkill. I don't, I'm not going to do that. By October, Nancy's calls <laughs> to Michael were becoming frantic and desperate. She was terrified of abuse and admitted to drugging Rob, she said, so she could avoid his abuse and attempts for sex. That's what she said about it. Del Priori had said. lost his job due to cavorting with a client, and Nancy was surreptitiously sending him money to make up for it. Oh, my God. When Rob discovered frequent cash withdrawals for one or $2,000 here and there that she was ultimately sending back to Michael, he went through the roof. Rob cut up her credit cards and put her on an allowance. And she was also forced to provide receipts for everything she bought so she could prove that she wasn't sending money to Michael. The battle for control had been fought and Nancy had lost, but the war wasn't over. Brenna O'Shea told Rob it was a terrible idea to take away Nancy's financial independence. She was now backed into a corner and Brenna believed that she would lash out violently like a wild animal. Like a civet? Like a little little mask civet <laughs> before you eat its saliva glands. It gives you SARS. <laughs> Gross. 
So though the two managed to snap a picture with former President George Bush Sr. at a gala they attended, which I will definitely put on the Instagram, just getting there was fraught. The two fought terribly. And though Connie and Min were living with them in the house and working at this point, and they don't remember this at all. But later, Nancy would claim that Rob ripped the dress she was wearing off of her body while they were getting ready and demanded that she choose a more conservative outfit that covered her shoulder tattoo. So that could have happened. The Chinese symbols. The Chinese symbols. Oh, man. The House of Cards finally came crashing down on October 9th when Rob discovered two months' worth of secret phone bills in Nancy's purse. He was heartbroken. Nancy had called Del Priori over 100 times between August and September. He realized then that it was truly over. He had lost the love of his life to the, quote, stereo guy. Rob called his divorce attorney to begin drafting divorce papers, which that's like three and a half times a day. That's so much talking on the phone. (laughs) It's just exhausting me thinking about it. The other thing is, though, like he's finally getting divorced. This is great news. Yeah. Don't you think that like you should have divorced the person when you can't take any food or drinks from them because you're convinced they're going to poison you or drug you? Yes, like, I would say yes. I would yes. say, and you're yes. rooting through their handbag like a little masked civet. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Again. That, yes. yes. I would say that is when the marriage is over. Maybe back with the spyware too. I was just gonna say. Yeah. Oh God, we're gonna bring a, a quality love murder line back. Get a divorce. Just. Oh my God, get it's a been divorce. a minute. We haven't said that in a long Let's time. Get Please, people. Begging you, just get a divorce. (laughs) Maybe not you guys. I'm sure you're all totally normal and happily married and nobody's killing anybody. But if you are in this situation, get a divorce. Yes, please. On October 23rd, with the threat of divorce looming, Nancy made trips to a series of doctors complaining of marital abuse, though no doctor could find physical evidence of assault. She complained also of anxiety and insomnia. Nancy also went to a walk-in clinic complaining of back pain and was given prescription pain medication. Altogether, in one week, she amassed a stash of highly controlled substances, including Ambien, Rohypnol, those are just roofies, actual roofies she got prescribed. For what? What was that Uh, for? So that's for insomnia. In some countries, you're allowed to buy roofies to treat insomnia. A painkiller called dextropropoxyphene, which according to the English National Health Service can cause rapid death. Lorazepam, which is a type of benzo. Axetol, which is a barbiturate. And amitriptyline, which is an antidepressant that causes significant drowsiness. This is a bad cocktail of drugs. Going into a bad woman's hands. Exactly. So on Sunday, November 2nd, the family went to the Sunday morning discussion group at the United Jewish Congregation. As per usual, Rob and Nancy were fighting. So Rob left first with the children and Nancy followed in her own car. On the way, she spotted a Parkview neighbor and his daughter who was wearing a UJC backpack and asked if they needed a ride to the morning group meeting. The father and daughter happily accepted. The man was named Andrew Tanzer, and he was the Hong Kong bureau chief for Forbes magazine. After the service, Zoe wanted to play with Andrew Tanzer's little girl, Leah, so the Kissels invited her over for a play date. For a play date. 
While Andrew and Rob made conversation in the living room, the two little girls made milkshakes in the kitchen with Nancy. Eventually, Andrew went to leave and Leah burst out of the kitchen. Here's the scene as described in Never Enough. Don't go, Daddy, Leah shouted, running in from the kitchen. We're making milkshakes with Zoe's mommy. Zoe ran in from the kitchen too. Will you taste these, she said, jumping with excitement. Rob shrugged at Tanzer and smiled. Tanzer was by now a little impatient to leave, but realized it would be rude to decline the children's offer. A moment later, Zoe and Leah reappeared. Each girl was holding a tall glass filled with a thick pink liquid. Here it is, Daddy, Zoe said, special for you. At the same time, Leah handed a glass to her father. Drink it, Daddy, Zoe said to Rob. It's yummy. Tanzer took a sip. What's in it, he asked. Lots of good stuff, his daughter said. There's bananas and crunched up cookies and lots and lots of other things. How's yours, Daddy? Zoe asked. Mmm, said Rob, a pink milk mustache on his upper lip. Okay, here goes, Tanzer said, draining his glass in one gulp. Rob did the same. You're right, sweetie, he said to Zoe. That was delicious. Tanzer smiled gamely. He found the shake appallingly sweet and with a consistency reminiscent of Metamucil. It also left an unpleasant aftertaste. He thanked Rob again and said he'd be back later for Leah. As he was walking out the door, Nancy popped out of the kitchen. Hi and goodbye, she said. The girls are having a great time. Thanks again, Tanzer said. By the way, what was in that milkshake? Oh, I can't tell you that. It's a secret recipe. An hour later, Andrew Tanzer passed out on his living room couch. His wife could not wake him. This was so out of character that she bent down to see if she could smell alcohol on his breath. So at about the same time, Rob brought Ethan down to the Parkview playground. He thought Zoe and Leah deserved some playtime by themselves. The main item on his agenda for the rest of the day was a 7.30 p.m. conference call with his distressed debt team. So basically, they had this big deal going down that Tuesday. So he was having the Sunday call to make sure that all of their ducks were in a row about this. So Rob's number two in command, David No, called him in advance of the conference call, and he was very alarmed at what he heard. Rob isn't making any sense whatsoever and appears intoxicated. So he tells Rob to take a couple hours to clear his head and get ready for the conference call. David had been told by Rob that he intended to officially tell Nancy that he was filing for divorce that night. So he thinks maybe Rob had a few drinks to get up the courage to end their marriage. Okay. It's still very weird and not at all like Rob, though. Shortly after this conversation, Nancy instructed Min to pick Ethan up from the playground to take him to a party and send Rob back up to their apartment. So I guess Min didn't have a watch, and she was going to have to pick Ethan up from the party at a certain time. So Rob gave Min his $15,000 Cartier watch so that she would know what time it was. She reported that he seemed sleepy and unsteady on his feet. When Isabel, Ethan, and Min returned home later around 7 p.m., Nancy told everyone to keep it down because Daddy was sleeping. David No became very concerned when Rob missed his 7.30 p.m. conference call and didn't respond to subsequent calls or emails. The next morning, Nancy tells Min and Connie that Robert left early for work. She also tells them that no one is allowed to go into her bedroom and request bleach powder, packing cartons, and a new storage unit. So none of the storage units were available in her tower, so she had to make do with the one they already had that was in Tower 15. She then went to an upscale home goods store where she bought new sheets, pillows, a bedspread, rug, and Shay's lounge. 
When she returned home from shopping, she once again sent Min out for rope, packing tape, and plastic sheeting. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. That evening, she tells Min, Connie, and the children that Rob was taking a trip to New York. So at this point, Min is very confused because she had left his watch out for him in the kitchen when she returned home from picking up Ethan. And so she's a little confused as to why he would leave for New York without taking his $15,000 Cartier watch that he usually never took off, you know? Okay. At 8 p.m. that night, Nancy called her father, and it's 6 a.m. in Chicago where he is, and Nancy is hysterical. She's crying hard. Through sobs, she tells her father that Rob was drunk the night before and he beat her. She claims that he left after the altercation, and she doesn't know where he is. So well, this makes me think that she's lying about the abuse the entire time. Yes, absolutely. Victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's knowing where this is going, I am inclined to agree strongly. Okay. So yeah. So at this point, I mean, Ira is really concerned. You know, this is his daughter. So he's like, lock yeah. the doors, don't let him in. If he tries to come in. You know, call the police. I'm going to get there as soon as I can, and we're going to go down to the Hong Kong police, and we're going to file a report. Okay. In the meantime, Nancy goes to the doctor on Tuesday morning, and she claims that she's been attacked the night before by her husband, and she says that her ribs are broken. But uh, x-ray proved that her ribs were not broken. They were not even bruised. The doctor did note that there were light finger marks on her upper right arm, rug burns on both knees, and a six-inch long bruise on Nancy's shin bone, however. When she returned from the doctor, she tearfully confided in Connie that Robert had been abusing her. Connie was shocked. Nancy claimed Rob had been getting drunk and hitting her, but Connie had never seen Robert even remotely drunk, and he was never angry or aggressive. In fact, if anyone in the household was, Connie thought that Nancy was. Meanwhile, Brenna O'Shea was concerned about Rob. She also knew, she was like one of two people, her and David No, both knew that he was planning on breaking the news to Nancy that he had filed for divorce that Sunday night. So she was a little concerned that she hadn't heard from him since. So she left several voice and emails for Rob and she even tried to connect through Nancy, but Nancy was super unhelpful. She again reiterates for the first time. So this is also her best friend. And she's never said that Rob was physically abusive before. But this time she says the whole thing about the fight and how he was beating her and he was drunk and he left. That's what she says. And so Brenna's like, well, where did he go? And she's like, I don't know, like New York probably. And she's like, well, did he take his suitcase? Did he take his wallet? Did he take his passport? And she's like, no, it's all here. And she's like, okay, then he couldn't have left. Like, what are you talking about? He's going to New York. And she's like, I don't know, Brenna. He's an adult. Like, I don't know. And just hung up on her. Wow. So, yeah. So, Brenna calls every high-end luxury hotel in Hong Kong asking if they have, you know, Robert as a guest. And David, no, is worried as well. And they end up connecting. And they decide that if they haven't heard from him by the following day, that David would go to the police. On Wednesday, before her father flies in, Nancy instructs handymen from the building to remove a rolled-up carpet from her living room and put it in a storage unit. Min was immediately concerned because she had gone to Min 
and was like, hey, can you go down to the storage unit, make some room for this eight foot long carpet I'm getting put in there. And she had pulled, like Nancy had pulled it into the living room from the bedroom. And Min was like, oh, no, the smell and the size of that carpet are all wrong. So she asked Nancy why the carpet was so bulky and stinky. And Nancy claimed that she stuffed it with old sheets and pillows. So Min is like, cool, 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 cool. I'm going to go call Connie because <laughs> this is crazy. And Connie is on the phone like she had been doing an errand with the children. And so she, Min's like, girl, get back here. There's something very wrong. I'm terrified. And so Connie comes back and Connie is horrified to discover what is certainly a carpet containing the corpse of her employer. So at this point, Connie emails Brynna and she's just like, please call me. It's very important. Call me as soon as you get this. And it's really sad. They say then that the two women did not know what to do. Connie and Min had no idea what to do. They were terrified. So they literally went into their pantry room and cried and like held each other. Ugh. Yep. So they're afraid to to defy her. So they're just like going through the motions and letting the maintenance men take the body down to the storage unit. And the maintenance men are like, hey, this is really screwed up, right? There's something really wrong in this situation. And they're all just like standing around being like, yeah, what do we do? But, you know, the environment of these, what they look at, they're looked at as like servants and how these expats who live here treat them. They're like, I guess we just do it, you know? So fucked up. Mm-hmm. So they, the guy puts the the body in the storage unit and he comes up and that's Nancy I was talking about at the beginning. He's like, hey, ma'am, like something was seriously wrong with that carpet. Like you need to get that checked out. And she's like, it's totally fine. Don't worry about it. Wow. So you're just going to store your dead husband rolled up in a rug in your storage unit. What does she think is going to happen here? Like what does she, does she think it's going to disappear? Does she think that bodies don't smell? Like what is the end game here? What is it? <laughs> I, I am aghast. Also, how lazy. Do you have to be to not get rid of your own body? She's like having Min and Connie go out to buy like bleach and all this stuff. Then then she's having the maintenance man come and roll the dead body away. Like how entitled are you? That is insane. <laughs> I think this is the worst disposal attempt that we have ever covered. It 100% is. Yeah. This is insane. But so, she yeah. just she took it from a movie. <laughs> That's so the had, craziest you thing. know, it had to work. This was premeditated and this was her best idea. Like she really thought about this for months. And this she's like rolled up in a carpet, stored. I got it. it. Bingo. I got it. I got it. I got what it. It's a moron. <laughs> let's just do what Richard Gere did. Yeah, let's just do that. It worked for him. Yeah. Uh, so by the time Brina wakes up, it's 6 a.m. in San Francisco, and she calls Connie back, and it's 10 p.m. Hong Kong time, and Connie tells her about the carpet. And Brina's like, oh, no. So she immediately tries to get in touch with David, 
But because of the time difference, he doesn't, she doesn't get through to him until 9 a.m. the following morning in Hong Kong on Thursday. Oh my God. I would have been calling a million times. Yep. So David immediately left work and went to the police. Thursday morning, Ira and Nancy were also at a different police station to report Rob's alleged assault on Nancy on Sunday night. To finalize the report, Nancy would have to go to the hospital so they could document her injuries. After waiting for nearly two hours in the emergency room, Nancy became frustrated and left without being seen. (laughs) So there's no documentation. You can't even, yeah, you can't even like, you can't even be a normal enough person to get your alibi taken care of. I know. That's get how your, like, reason. She is. Yeah, she's out he, of her mind. Well, Joe McGinn has also suggested in the book that she was like, why do I have to wait? Like, I am, like, a rich white person. Why am I waiting? Like, they should see me right away. Ugh. For your fake assault injuries. Your fake injuries, Yes. So, so they leave. They end up running some errands. I think they get some food. And Ira is still jet lagged. So she drops him off at his hotel room. Meanwhile, the police received a search warrant for the storage room and interviewed the maintenance men. And everybody who is even remotely close to the storage unit is like, oh, there's something dead in there. This is bad. Yeah. Yeah. That smell is horrible. It's beyond horrible. Like we had like a tiny, teeny little mouse die in one of our walls and it was disgusting. I can't imagine what a grown man's decomposing body would smell like. I mean, it would be overwhelming, you know? Oh, gross. So yeah. So at this point they have this the search warrant, but they decide to go up to get the key from Nancy. So they're like, look, lady, we got to get in your storage unit. Can you give us the key? And she just shuts down. So she does call her father, but then her father comes over and there's this very nice detective there who's like, hey, I think we found your son-in-law. And he's like, oh, great. Like, what, what, what's going on? And they're like, he's not alive. We don't believe he's alive. We believe he's in the storage unit downstairs. And at this Rolled point- Rolled up in a home goods rug. <laughs> Oh, I don't think they had home goods. They were fancy bitches. I I know, but you said home goods, and that's all I thought about when you were telling this story. Oh, when I was saying the home goods store? Yeah. I love a good home goods I know they went to some bougie shit, but I just like imagining that it was actually home goods. Yeah, it was like like this bougie store called Tequila Cola. So basically, Ira comes into this nightmare scenario where he has this dawning realization – that his daughter has killed her husband and he looks over at her and she is just like shaking. She's just violently shaking and saying nothing. And he's like, give them the goddamn key, Nancy, give them the key. And so she like kind of is still shaking and she gestures to the kitchen drawer and he goes and he finds it and he gives it to them and they go down to the storage unit. And this is how Joe McGinnis described the scene. Oh, shit. The stench assaulted the policemen as soon as they opened the storeroom door. It was the smell emitted by a decomposing and putrefying human body as approximately 96 hours after death. The grotesquely swollen carpet lay on the floor. Nancy had fitted black plastic garbage bags over each end and had secured them with adhesive tape. She had then wrapped the entire carpet in polyethylene sheeting. 
After taping that shot, she had tied four cushions to the outside of it using nylon rope. Scientific officer Mac Chung Hung got down on one knee and slit open the black plastic bag at one end. He stuck a gloved hand inside. He felt a human head. He looked oh, up at Inspector what? C and nodded. It was 2.15 a.m. Friday, November 7th. Okay. I feel that bag's fashion look it, or the rug's fashion situation is like real bad. It's like real bad. black trash bags on each end wrapped in polyurethane. And then, then with cushions on the outside cushions? wrapped in nylon rope. And how are the cushions supposed to help with the smell? I, are they supposed you, to help? How are those? Did she think that by attaching the cushions it would disguise the body shape? Maybe? It's an eight-foot-long carpet that smells like a human. Dot, like a dying human. I am... I'm still bewildered at how this seemed like a, a reasonable way to get rid of a body. Does she have anything for us? Does she have any information for us? Does she talk about it at all? Yes, we'll get into okay. it. Okay. So not yet though, because right now she's like basically catatonic. So at the autopsy, the pathologist found that Rob had been killed by five blows to the right side of the head with a blunt object. The blows had been so hard that part of Rob's brain was seeping out of his head. Okay, Jess, that's like horrible. And I think I might have a feeling about what is going to happen. Uh-huh. I bet you do. It appeared to the pathologist that Rob had been lying down in a prone position when he was struck. A toxicology report would also show the presence of five different hypnotic and sedative drugs in Rob's stomach. Ugh. Later on, after a search of the Kissel's apartment, those drugs would be matched to a set of prescription bottles Nancy had attempted to hide in a handbag behind some cushions. Good job, Nancy. Yeah, she is bad at this. Speaking of Nancy. The real Nancy Drew over here. The opposite. Nancy don't. <laughs> Speaking of Nancy, following the search and subsequent discovery of Rob's body, she went completely catatonic. She was shaking violently and refused to speak. Nancy was taken to a hospital to be treated for her mental and emotional breakdown while remaining in custody of the police. This goes on for days. Even when her attorney arrives to question her, she can only blink in response to his questions. This kind of went on for weeks, but it was selective. Like, it seemed like she picked and chose when the hysteria would strike her. How convenient. Mm-hmm. In the book, Joe McGinnis says that she was perhaps attempting secondary gain through an imagined or real conversion hysteria. Conversion hysteria is when emotional distress is so extreme, it expresses through physical conditions like being unable to speak or walk or violent trembling. The secondary gain associated with Nancy's symptoms was that she would remain in a hospital rather than going to jail and she wouldn't have to face the music until she was dubbed competent to be in court. Okay, this is annoying. Yeah. It's really annoying. When the Kissel's apartment was searched, the police found not only the subscription medication in Nancy's name, but also a series of packing boxes that contained blood-soaked sheets and other bloody debris. At the bottom of one of these packing boxes, they found the murder weapon, which I think you know what it is, Andy. I think I know what it is. Yes. The murder weapon was a Wait, broken- let me guess, let me guess, let me guess. Let me guess. <laughs> Go ahead. Was it her iron statue? 
Yes, it was the lead <laughs> statuette alongside it. It was broken, basically. So the figurines of the little girls had been broken off. Oh, my God. From, from her grandma? Was it from her grandma? Yes, it was her grandmother's. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is so psychotic. Yes, the police theorized that Nancy had used the figurines as the handle to swing the heavy lead vase like a club into Robert's skull. Oh, my God. Like, oh, my God. What did she think was going to happen? She's going to end up with Mr. Michael? I mean, she really – she is so delusional that she still does. I mean, she's – she. you'll see. I'm going to read one of the letters later, but she is writing Michael letters throughout this entire experience. The press naturally went wild for the story of a glamorous expat wife killing her multimillionaire investment banker husband, and Ira rushed to get the children and Connie to the United States and out of the limelight. Those kids were bounced around terribly in the months and years after the murder. So they originally go to live with Ira and his third wife in Winnetka, Illinois, but his wife became sick. So he then sent them to live in Cincinnati with Nancy's 24-year-old half-brother who was in medical school. Bill Kissel erupted in vitriol at this placement, and he told the brother that he would launch a national smear campaign to make him appear to be a child molester if he fought for custody. He was saying, what kind of 24-year-old guy wants to have custody of a preteen girl, you know? Oh, my God. That is so crazy. It's so vile. There's crazy on both sides. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, the the Kizzle family was messy for sure, you know? So I don't think Rob was necessarily, but his dad. I mean, I can see why their family gatherings were so volatile. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, so basically the half-brother was like, I don't want any part of this. Like, I feel like I'm sad for the kids, but like, fine, you guys can have them. So the kids were sent to Andrew and Haley's in Greenwich and some did speculate that Andrew only wanted custody of the children to control their $20 million trust fund. He certainly was spending like crazy. Andrew bought a $3.6 million 90-foot yacht and other crazy things almost on a whim. Like, for instance, one of his daughters liked horseback riding, so he bought a stable. One night, he couldn't get a table at this popular restaurant. So the next day he bought a controlling stake in it. So he could say he was an owner and always get a table. Yeah. Yep. That's the type of stuff he was spending money on. He was also having affairs, one of which Haley found out about. She wrote an angry email to Sister Jane saying, I am busting my ass taking care of five kids while he's out having dinner with her in some nice restaurant. I can't believe I've stayed in this relationship this long. But this is the ultimate humiliation and I can't take it anymore. So Haley did end up filing for divorce and all hell broke loose during this process. And Jane started wondering how well Rob and Nancy kids were actually doing, especially after she was on the end of some questionable remarks made by Haley. So according to Jane, as told to Joe McGinnis, Haley said, I hate to say it, but every time I see Rob's kids now, I see Andrew in them. I hate to take it out on them, but I can't help it. Wait, so she doesn't see Andrew in her own kids? Own kids? I know. So Haley's who's are actually half him. Yeah. I think she was also resentful because I don't know how much she wanted to take the kids. And I think she might have been pushed into it by Bill and her husband. 
So I'm sure that there was some resentment that she was at home taking care of not only her children, but also his deceased brother's children at his request. Yeah. And he's running around all over, you know? Yep. Yep. Haley's filings seem to have driven Andrew past some personal point of no return. He would bring a bottle of scotch into his office in Stamford and spend hours forging and falsely notarizing the documents needed to obtain fraudulent loans. Wow. Then he would decide it was party time and nobody would see him for days. This was so ridiculous to me, this next part. He'd invested in an off-Broadway show called Pieces, and then in parentheses, of ass. It consisted of a series of original monologues from a rotating cast of beautiful women, a press release said. These pieces aim to go beneath the beautiful facade and examine the concept of hot chick angst. Oh my God. I don't have words for how <laughs> terrible that sounds. Oh, it's so hard to be so pretty. Being a hot girl really sucks. Uh, nobody ever loves me for me. It's just for my banging good looks. <laughs> Yes. Well, it seems like Andrew had a personal interest in the show because he got close to a couple of the actresses that were involved yeah, he in did. the production. Yeah. And so he tells Haley, this is around the time of the filing, that he's going to Miami for a business meeting. And he actually just takes a bunch of these actresses on a private jet down to his yacht that is docked in Miami. And they have like total drug party binge and Haley is trying to reach him and a drunk young woman answers the phone when she's trying to call him. So it blows his spot up. So she at that point emails Jane and is like, I hate your brother so much. Jane replied the next morning asking Haley if she was all right. Haley replied, I am okay. He's just such an awful, pathetic person. I just fucking hate him. His I am the king attitude, his value system or lack thereof his anger, his meanness. I just hate him. He will never be a good, responsible person. I just can't believe how he can so readily shirk his responsibility to his family. He is horrible, just horrible, and I hate his fucking guts. Do you know last night in bed I could actually see myself pummeling him to death and just enjoying the sensation of each and every shot? Do we have a double murder here? We might have a double murder situation. So yeah, so she then tells her that he put up this pole in her in their garage because she wanted he wanted to tell her where to stop to park and stuff and she gets so angry she's been like purposely like running into it and stuff and she's like I hate him literally writes in this email like 13 A's a million T's E's like full caps I hate him so Jane, of course, is very concerned for the children at this point. Rob's children had been through something so deeply, profoundly traumatic, and now they're in this situation. So unstable, she, completely unstable. So she told Andrew that she wanted custody of the children. He said she couldn't have it. They accused each other of caring more about the trust fund than the children. So Jane said, well, tough titties, I'm going to sue for custody because this is not a stable home environment. And Andrew was like, well, I'll fight you back on it. You're not taking the kids. Then Haley chimed in. She told Jane that Andrew was essentially bankrupt and that she'd be left with nothing after the divorce, but the trust fund could help her maintain her standard of living. According to Jane, oh. she said... 
if I keep the kids, she said, it may not be the best thing for them, but at least I won't be on the street. I'm not going to let the Kissels take anything more from me. I've given enough. I'm going to do what's best for myself. Doesn't she come from a wealthy-ass family? Yes, she's fine. Her parents will help her. This is ridiculous. Oh, my God. Yep. And then Bill called from Florida to tell Haley that she was a money-grubbing bitch. So things are exactly the same for the Kissels over here. In good news, though, there was a protracted court battle, and Jane did get custody of the children And she got them over to Seattle, Washington real fast where God, they were raised in a very stable and loving home with Jane and her husband. So a world away on June 7th, 2005, their mother, Nancy, was getting ready for her highly publicized trial. A newspaper article wrote, for Hong Kong expats, the Kissel murder trial is the O.J. Simpson murder trial and the Michael Jackson child abuse drama rolled into one, a lurid drama, a wild American soap opera transplanted to Asia. (sighs) Going into trial, Nancy and her attorneys had disagreed on strategy. The Hong Kong legal system is by and large based on English law, and her attorneys believe that the best bet was to offer a defense of provocation. Basically, with this defense, if a jury found that she had been provoked to lose self-control, like it doesn't even have to be that she was in fear for her life. It's just that he made her so angry or something, you know, that they would potentially convict on manslaughter, not murder, which would carry a much lighter sentence. So this is what her attorneys want to do, but Nancy refused, and she would only enter a self-defense defense, which could lead to acquittal. And the Nancy's attorneys at this point are like, eh, basically for self-defense you to get an acquittal, you have to prove that the force was necessary in the situation. And yeah. the fact that he was hit so many times so hardly, like so so hard, and aggressively, and she barely had a scratch on her, that would be incredibly difficult to prove. So at this point, Nancy tells them, and this will be the story that the defense would maintain, that she had been fighting for her life. She says that it's a true self-defense situation because Rob had been drunk and demanding violent sex from her. And when she refused, he began swinging a baseball bat at her and screaming, I am going to kill you, you bitch. She then claimed that she had defended herself with a statuette, but the trauma from the attack caused dissociative amnesia, which was a pretty convenient excuse, author Joe McGinnis pointed out. If Nancy had experienced disassociative amnesia, she wouldn't be able to recall anything between Rob's attack and, say, the arrival of the police at the apartment. Why had she kept the body in the bedroom for two and a half days? Why had she rolled it up in a carpet? Why hadn't she simply called the police as soon as she realized that Rob was dead to tell them that her husband had just tried to kill her, but she'd apparently killed him in self-defense? Simple. She couldn't remember anything that had happened. She'd been in a state of disassociative amnesia. So basically the defense does everything they can to slander Rob's character. They just have to make him look like the worst, most abusive disgusting piece of shit so that basically they want the jury to be like, oh, this poor woman, she was fighting for her life and and thank goodness she got out alive, you know? 
so sad for him. It's so, it's so sad. And I hate it so much when they put the victim on trial, essentially, in these situations. It is just so. Especially when they have babies. When they have children and they have families, like family members who are coming to the trial. Yeah, and they do weird stuff too. Like they got a computer expert to testify that he had at one point Googled gay porn. Like how is that relevant to this situation? Oh my God. Yeah. And 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 it just seemed like they were trying to say that he was some sort of deviant for doing as such. Uh, I mean, if there, there was no way Rob was having any sort of affair, they would have found it and brought it up if they could have. He was just a hardworking guy who was very paranoid about his cheating wife, you know, with good reason. Yeah. So basically they were trying also to say that I think that the, the, the whole gay sex porn thing was that they were trying to make a link to this later testimony that Nancy said. So Nancy does get on the stand in her own defense and she tells this harrowing story about Rob inflicting horrific abuse on her, including anal rape. And she claims that he beat her while she was pregnant. And she also related the story of the night of the attack. And there was, I guess, a baseball bat in their bedroom that Rob, who was a big Yankees fan, kept in his in his bedroom for some reason. So they entered that into evidence. And they said this proves that somehow that is the, the real story. But of course, it would have had his fingerprints on it. It's It was his bat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so there they bring up the fact that she had Googled all of the medication, that she had gone to all of those doctors and basically shopped for all the medication. And then how did it end up in Rob's stomach, you know? And she says that she has no idea how, like, Rob must have taken all of that medication himself. And she said that the reason she had it was because of all of her depression, anxiety, and mental problems from him being abusive. And she also said that when she Googled that stuff, it was to find out ways to commit suicide because she was so unhappy in her marriage. This is what she claims. Uh, So the prosecution called BS on all of that and told the jury that Nancy drugged Rob with a milkshake after doctor shopping prescription sedatives and then bludgeoned him to death with a lead statuette. The evidence showed that Rob had been lying down when attacked, and he also had almost zero alcohol in his system. So this drunk, raving, lunatic attack seemed- Sex addict. Sex addict thing that they're trying to say he was just seemed extremely unlikely when you look at the actual evidence. Exactly. The motive the prosecution contended was love and money. She wanted her lover, but with her husband's money. His death with his $10 million life insurance payout, all of his numerous assets, and the kid's $20 million trust fund would have been hers. Oh, my God. So gross. So gross. Min and Connie both testified against their former employer, denying that they witnessed any signs of abuse and contending that Nancy was mean and vindictive. Frank Shea testified about his investigation into Nancy's affair and Rob's fears at the end of his life. Andrew Tanzer and his wife testified to the effects of the drugged milkshake, which was so stupid, too, to drug both things. Also, what if one of the little girls had drank the milkshake? I know. I know. And you're having the little girls give it to the dads? Like, you're Because fucked. she knew that he wouldn't take anything from her. 
he didn't realize how truly craven she was, that she would risk her child's life and another child in order to get him. Throughout the trial, Nancy wrote these meandering fantasy-like letters to Michael, which Michael later provided to author Joe McGinnis. And they are so cringe, Andy. So it's it makes my skin crawl reading. And Joe McGinnis puts a bunch of them in the book. We don't have time to get into how bad these letters are, but I will write, read you one snippet of one. Just a sneaky snippet. Just a snippet so you can feel the cringe wherever you are as well. Hi, my love. I'm back from court. Long day. And guess what? It's pouring outside, so you're right next to me. I love the sounds, the wind, everything about the rain. Today, you and I went to our favorite local diner. We go every Wednesday. Same booth in the same corner so we can sit together side by side. (laughs) You can't even do it. I can't. (laughs) Everyone working there knows us. They know it's our table. So they hold it every Wednesday. No menus. And always a slice of pie is put aside for you. We take a walk after we eat and hold hands. When we get home, we get ready for bed. You help me get undressed. We're making love to one another so beautifully. We're another day closer, my love. One day we'll wake up and this nightmare will be over. And once more, you'll be able to look into my eyes and see them loving you. Tonight, we can fall asleep together listening to the rain. Make love to me, Michael. Hold me in your arms until I fall asleep. Don't let go. Oh, bitch, you're going to jail. Oh. Also, do you know what's really sad is that she's writing a million of these terrible letters. Also, like, there was, like, a bunch of them that had a fantasy about them washing dishes together and their hands touching in the soapy, warm water. And I was like, bitch, you've never washed a dish in your life. Shut up. This is a fantasy. You don't know how to wash a dish. Um, But yeah, she's writing all these insane love letters that have all these like weird fantasies about what they're doing or what they're going to be doing in their new life together. And she's not writing to her children at all. She is not writing at all to her kids. Like completely is like, they're better off, you know? Like, they're fine. Yeah. I don't have to worry about them. Well, unfortunately for Nancy, that fantasy would not come through for a couple reasons. The first being that Michael had actually moved on and he had a new girlfriend and was not responding to her letters anymore. Yeah. You're a murderer. You're a murderer. Yes. <laughs> a murderer. That is a lot these letters. No, nobody's like, oh, that's hot. No. You rolled up your husband after bashing him in the head with an iron statuette? Rolled him up in a rug? Yeah, I'm not taking you. Do you think I'm ever talk to you again? I'm not taking you down to the diner. We're not eating pie with one fork together. No. It's murder pie. No, I'm not getting any of that murder pie. <laughs> the second being that after eight hours of deliberation, the Hong Kong jury returned a verdict of guilty. Thank you. God. I know. In Hong Kong, a murder conviction automatically results in a term of life imprisonment. Yeah. Nancy's not going to be playing footsie with uh, her imaginary (laughs) lover anytime soon. To add a little lemon to the wound, shortly after the trial, news breaks that Michael has a new woman in his life and paparazzi photos show Michael and the woman canoodling as well as a shirtless Michael mowing his lawn. Which an English language Chinese newspaper described 
so brutally and so meanly that I had to include it. They said, the sweating Michael took off his shirt and walked around with his fat belly bouncing around. Why would you say that? He's not the bad guy here. He's not the bad guy. Although he probably should have stayed away from the married lady, but still, he's not the bad guy. He should have stuck to the electronics. Exactly. Oh, I mean, yeah, but I do, I do feel kind of bad for him because no one wants, first of all, nobody wants paparazzi. Like, and he's, he did everything he could to stay out of the limelight. Apparently the National Enquirer offered him $25,000 to tell his side of the story and he turned it down. Nothing. No. And but he's getting together National Enquirer. He, he just didn't want any piece of the story. He was horrified by everything, you know? And then the paparazzi are coming around, taking sneaky photos of him with his shirt off and calling him fat. It's so mean. Uh, Nancy was devastated, but continued to write to Michael her messages of lost love. She planned on appealing and vowed that someday the two would be reunited. Meanwhile, things were going extremely badly for the other Kissels as well. During Nancy's trial, Andrew had been arrested by the FBI for falsifying mortgage documents in order to defraud banks in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. He had defrauded the banks to the tune of somewhere between 25 and $50 million. Oh, my God. Yes. I bet that'll buy you he lots needs to of go to pieces jail. of ass. Oh, he's going. He's going to jail. Okay. So he was let out on house arrest on $1 million bail where he had to disastrously live with Haley and the kids during this period. And it's it's just their two daughters at this point. But still, it was not a good situation. So Andrew stopped paying the $15,000 a month rent because he was going to be going to jail and they were served with an eviction notice. So Haley's father- What are they doing renting a home? I I don't know. I mean, he had a $3 million yacht, but they're renting their house in Greenwich. I don't know. He must've had something sneaky going on with it, you know? What a mess. Yeah, so Haley's father bought her a $2 million house two miles away, and on April 1st, 2006, the family moved out, except for Andrew. On April 6th, Andrew was due to be sentenced on the federal bank fraud charges, and prosecutors estimated that he was going to be given 10 years in jail. So there's just like, you know, those six days between when the family moves out and when he's going to be sentenced. Haley and Andrew argued about leaving Andrew furniture, and eventually she left him a bed, nightstand, and chair. So while she's leaving, she basically instructs the movers to come on the day of his hearing to pick up the last of the furniture and bring it back to her new house. And she also calls Bill. Even though she did not get along with Bill, she hadn't talked to him in a while after this, after the um, custody case. But she was like, hey... I know we don't get along and obviously Andrew and I have our issues, but he is deeply depressed and I think he might kill himself. I think you should get on a plane and come up to be with him because things are going down and he is in a bad way. Bill doesn't care. Bill did not care. He was still processing his son's death, his favorite son's death, and he was ashamed of Andrew's illegal activity. So he was like, screw that kid. I don't care. He didn't even call him, which is super sad. On 8.30 a.m. on Monday morning, the movers arrived and no one was there to let them in. So they called Haley and Haley gave them the gate code and then they found the front door unlocked. 
as they removed the last of the furniture, one of the movers was kind of like checking out the whole house to make sure they hadn't left anything. And he goes down into the basement where he makes a horrifying discovery. Andrew's body was laying in a huge pool of blood. His hands and feet had been bound with plastic zip ties and a t-shirt was pulled over his head. It was immediately clear that he had been stabbed multiple times in the back. Oh my God. Yeah. So his Blackberry cell phone and I guess he had some sort of email reading device were both missing. And the police did theorize that the murderer was known to Andrew because there was a lack of forced entry. So he had definitely let his... Let him in. Mm-hmm. Naturally, suspicion fell on Haley. Jane gave the police the emails where said she said she wanted to kill Andrew. And Bill told the press that Haley was an angry woman who was motivated by money. He believed that the cops should not rule her out. Even Nancy Grace did a show all about the murder and alleged that Haley was a strong suspect. Eventually, however, Haley was completely ruled out, but the effects of the suspicion were devastating. She lost her hedge fund job due to the negative publicity. Eventually, she went to work for her father, but spent a ton of time in civil court battling creditors for any breadcrumbs of money that they could get out of Andrew's estate. My God. This well, is I'm just sure a nightmare. He was, I'm sure he was involved in something shady and someone needed him to shut up before mm-hmm. his testimony or whatever. Exactly. So uh, Haley has since kept a low social profile and has poured all of her time and energy into raising her daughter. So I hope that she and the girls are no kidding. doing well and have Did they find back. the murderer? Yes. Okay. So the police okay. focused on the last known person to see Andrew. Carlos Trujillo was a Colombian-born handyman and chauffeur who had worked for Andrew and stopped by at 6 p.m. on Sunday night to wish him well on the next day's sentencing hearing. Carlos claimed that Andrew was still alive when he left. Carlos did fail a polygraph when questioned about that night, but the police didn't have much else to go on until Carlos's cousin Leonard ratted him out and took he took a plea deal, a shortened sentence for his involvement in the crime. He said that Carlos had laundered money for his boss by dispersing it to members of Carlos's family, and he was concerned that his own illegal activities would be discovered in the light of the proceedings. Andrew also, I think, wanted to recoup the money. It had been a little over $200,000 that he had given Carlos to hide. And I think at that point, Carlos or his family members had spent the money. So Carlos was also unable to get it back to him, you know? Yeah. So Carlos asked his cousin Leonard to kill Andrew for $11,000 cash and a computer. Lenny accepted the offer and planned the murder with Carlos, but ultimately claimed he backed out of the deal. Lenny did not know who actually killed Andrew. In exchange for his testimony, Lenny was given a reduced sentence of 20 years for the attempted murder. Based on mostly Lenny's testimony and a credit card receipt that showed Carlos had purchased the same exact zip ties that were found on Andrew's body, Carlos was Uh, charged with Andrew's murder and attempted murder, and he was actually acquitted of the murder, uh, but the jury could not decide on attempted murder. And so it went to mistrial. At that point, Carlos entered a guilty plea to the attempted murder charge under the Alford Doctrine, which means 
he did not admit guilt, but agreed that the state had enough evidence against him to gain a conviction. So it's like a a deal in which you say you don't say you're guilty, but you say your back's against a wall, you'll make a deal, you know? Yeah. Okay. So he was sentenced to 20 years in prison to be suspended after six, and then he was deported back to Colombia. Carlos, to this day, has maintained his innocence in the murder. So I wonder, but he would know who did it, wouldn't he? Yeah. He said he, he basically said that this was all a lie. Leonard made the whole thing up. He was on good terms with his boss and he wished him well. He was a friend to him and he left and he was alive that day. Wow. Yeah. So we don't know for sure. He did plead guilty. I think he's back in Columbia by now. Yeah. So Nancy Kissel succeeded in getting a retrial in 2010 due to legal errors, but the results were the same. On March 25th, 2011, she was once again found guilty of murdering her husband. Nancy is still serving her sentence at Thai Lam Center for Women in Hong Kong. She never gave up on her love for Michael Del Priori. Michael, for his part, only wanted to put Nancy and that part of his life way in the rear view. He refused all requests for interviews, like I told you with the National Enquirer. He married the blonde woman from the tabloid photos named Tracy in June of 2006, a year after Nancy's trial. For months and months after Michael stopped responding, Nancy continued to write. At first, he and Tracy would read the letters together. Then he eventually got a storage unit where he deposited the letters unread. At the start of September 2006, Tracy started to get annoyed with the letters. So Michael wrote to the superintendent of the Thai Lam Center and formally requested that the letters be stopped. Oh, my God. Whoa, that's rough. That's so rough to be told you have to stop <laughs> writing those letters. Or if she kept writing them, they just didn't mail them. Yeah, that's he, embarrassing. Yeah, he did not hear from her again. And that was the end of that. Thank you, Ty Lam. Yes. Good job, Ty Lam. Okay. Also, <laughs> Sleepless NCA recommended <laughs> that I also check out this Lifetime movie about the case that I so desperately wanted to see because John Stamos plays Andrew in it. Oh my God. It looked so good. It looked so good. I could not find it streaming anywhere. There was like this one weird version where you could only see it in like a quarter of the screen and the rest of the screen was like shooting stars or something. I guess it's to like confuse the AI that, you know, knows it's a fake. And it was impossible to watch. So I was like, oh, this is such a bummer. I Googled it and it was available by DVD. Um, I do not have a DVD player. So I Amazon primed the DVD and the DVD player and it came on Friday and I was so jazzed. And then the cords that they gave me didn't hook up to my TV. So I couldn't watch it after all of that. Guys, I'm so sad. I love John Stamos. Love to save that for next time we're together. Yeah, I'll get the right cords. And then when you are here again, or or I'll bring it to California, we'll it's watch this. It's shocking to me that you, you're not bringing the DVD player to California. No, you'll just have to come here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I could bring the DVD. You don't have a DVD player it's, either, do you? It's sh- – no. <laughs> So anyway, I didn't get to see the, the the movie and I'm sad about it. If you guys have seen it, you know, tell us about it. Tell me what I'm missing. Or tell me if it's worth skipping and then I'll feel less bad. Again, thank you guys so much for all of your beautiful reviews. Um, we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. It's definitely been helping us just our souls emotionally and also um, helping other people find the show. So if you if you do enjoy the show, please uh, take the time to write us a review and we'll send you some dope stickers. 
in conclusion, an old love murder standby, but it remains to be said once again, just get a divorce, people. Yeah, and if you're not going to get a divorce, let's maybe not imitate a movie where someone has an affair and kills their husband. And, yeah. Or, you know, any any murder movie. Let's just yeah. never imitate a murder movie in real life. Yeah, Period. let's just not murder. Unfaithful, whatever. Yep. Yeah. Just because Richard nope. Gere could pull it off doesn't mean you can, sweetie. Mm-mm-mm. No one can. No. <laughs> no one can. And as always, remember to trust your gut when it comes to love. So no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, Andy. Bye. 